The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we come for a second week to Revelation chapter 6. Two weeks ago, I was in the middle of this incredible chapter, and uh, I, I knew that the sermon was way too long. There was no way I was going to get through the whole thing. And so I think uh, some folks spoke, wisely spoke into my life and said, why don't we do it, do it in two weeks? But I knew that the second week would be challenging because there would be an intervening week. We come to study the book of Revelation, and we come to the most complicated, the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret. We have to have a sense of certainty that the exegesis, the interpretation we're doing in Scripture is absolutely the right one. But we come as people who are hungry to have an encounter with the living God. And that's something I desire every week as I preach. That you would have an encounter with Christ through the words of whatever text I'm preaching. We've learned that faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And no book makes the mysteries of the future so clear as does the book of Revelation. But I would say also it's one of the greatest books for revealing the glories of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's the very first thing that Revelation says it does. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants who he is. And also those things that must soon take place. So we have a revelation of the greatness of Christ. And you're going to see that in the text again today. But also an unfolding of that which must soon take place, an unfolding of the future. Now, by way of context, we saw in Revelation 1 through 3, the Apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos off the coast of, of modern-day Turkey. He was there in exile for his testimony to Jesus Christ. He was being punished by the Roman Empire and was sent in exile rather than being executed. And he was in the Lord. Uh, on the, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and he had a vision of Christ, the resurrected, glorified Christ, moving through seven golden lampstands, which represent Christ's active daily concern for local churches around the world. And we saw in Revelation 2 and 3 the letters that he wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor and they were real churches that existed at that time, but they also represent various types and themes and patterns of local church ministry throughout all of church history. And we saw Christ's active concern. Then in Revelation 4, we have an incredible journey that the Apostle John took when he saw standing open in heaven a doorway and the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to him, inviting him, even commanding him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now that's a command he could never have obeyed on his own by his own strength and power. But by the Spirit he was able to obey. Went through a doorway and he saw a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. That throne is the central reality of the universe. It's a throne of Almighty God. And there in Revelation 4 you have 24 elders around that throne. You have four living creatures. You have a hundred million angels. And they're constantly day and night celebrating the greatness of God the Creator. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength for you created all things. And by your word they were created and continue to have their being. And so God the creator, God the sustainer of all things is celebrated and worshipped there in Revelation 4. Then in Revelation 5 we have a detail, a scroll rolled up in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne sealed with seven seals and a mighty angel proclaims who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? But no one was found in heaven or earth or under the earth who is worthy to take the scroll and, and open it and look inside it. And John wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. But then one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then he looked and saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The very thing we were singing about this morning. Behold the lion, behold the lamb. The greatness of the power of Jesus Christ, but also his submiss submission to his father. How he, he was willing to die, that his blood would be poured out. And so a different wave of celebration goes in Revelation 5 as, as concentric circles of created beings and angels are, are just in, in a cascading way praising Jesus 
Because he was slain and with his blood he purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 4 and 5. Now we come to Revelation 6. And these seals begin to be broken open. And as Jesus breaks open these seals, some things start to happen and unfold on planet Earth. Now remember we said that Jesus promised that John would see things that must soon take place. He would show him the future. Now as we come to the breaking open of the seals, and indeed beyond that to the uh, trumpets and the bowls that are going to follow, there are two different, I think, valid approaches to these chapters in the book of Revelation. One of them is to see everything written in these seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls as future not only to John but to us. And so there are things that have not yet begun but they will begin in that final seven year tribulation, the great tribulation. So it's a purely futurist verse. But every generation not knowing when Jesus will return reads these saying these things might come in our lifetime but it's always future not only to John but to us. And that's completely valid. I think that's a, a, a possible way to interpret it. However, I think there's some more depth or some more nuance might come from looking and comparing these seven seals to Jesus' teaching of the end of the world in Matthew 24. Now, don't turn over there, but just let me give you a quick, su- quick summary of Matthew 24 called the Olivet Discourse or the Little Apocalypse because it covers much of the same ground through the lips of Jesus. There, Jesus, in the final day, his final uh, days of his final ministry on earth, comes out of the temple and the disciples say, they're so impressed by the massive stones of the temple. They're so impressed by the temple and they say, what marvelous stones. And Jesus says, do you see all these stones? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down, predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. So they come to him later in private and they say, when will this happen? The destruction of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the triple nature of their question makes Matthew 24 a very difficult chapter to interpret. Sometimes Jesus, it seems, is speaking about events that focus on the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the destruction of the temple. And sometimes, uh, it seems, goes right out across all of history to the end of the world. But as we start to compare things that he says in Matthew 24 to the breaking over the seals, there seems to be some, some connection and it's helpful. For me, as I showed you two weeks ago, it's helpful to look specifically at Matthew 24, 37. And there Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This has become a very important uh, uh, interpretive key for me on eschatology or end time teaching in the Bible. As it was, so it will be. In other words, things happen in history that are not involved in the final generation. That in some way play out events that will happen right before the second coming of Christ. Right before the end of the world. So not just the flood, but many things happen again and again and again. As it was, so it will be. So as we come to Revelation 6, we come to the four horsemen of the apocalypse with the first breaking over the first four seals. And you're going to see some kind of connection between that and things that Jesus said would happen. For example, in Matthew 24, 6 through 8, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. They are what I called in another uh, sermon uncertain signs. They're uncertain because they happen in every generation. There's never been a single generation in which there weren't wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places. But he's still encouraging the church... That when they see these sufferings, they should not think that redemptive history has gone off the rails. God's in charge. He said these things would happen. He said in John, behold, I have told you ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am. You'll trust in me. So I'm I'm on my throne. Everything's right uh, right on schedule. So in, in these seals, these six seals, you can see some connections to things that he said were going to happen again and again. But I would also say that there are some aspects or details that go beyond anything we've ever seen in history. And that will especially be true when we get to the trumpets and bowls. There are just some things that happen there that have never happened before, ever. And so they're unique. So we have what's known as, as already not yet eschatology. Some things we see now already happening, but then some things that are yet to come. And I think we're going to see both in these seals. So let's go a quick, uh, do a quick review on what we saw last time and then we'll get into the next two seals. The first seal is broken and the first rider is unleashed. 
Look at verse 1 and 2. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So this, the Lamb is Jesus. The Lamb that was slain is Jesus. He has this scroll that was in the right hand of God the Father that he took out of his hand. And now with his sovereign power, with his right to rule history, he breaks open these seals successively. And as he breaks open each of these seals, things happen on earth. He triggers the events. Jesus triggers these earthly events. Now you can imagine these four horsemen, just the image of a, of a, of a mounted warrior coming at you. If you were a, a, a foot soldier back in those days, nothing could be more terrifying. You could feel the ground shaking under your feet. The terror of uh, you know, a horse over, weighing perhaps over half a ton coming at you maybe 20, 30 miles an hour, maybe more. With a warrior bent on, on destruction coming right at you. It's a terrifying image. And, and yet this first horseman is different it seems than the others. Dressed in white, very similar to the description of Jesus Christ at the second coming in Revelation 19. So therefore, some interpreters believe this represents the spread of the gospel. The very thing Jesus did say in Matthew 24, 14 would happen. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's its strongest point, but I don't think that's how we should interpret this first of the four horsemen. The four horsemen, I think, should be seen together as judgment on God, by God, on uh, on the human race. So it would be strange to pick out the first horse and make him intrinsically different than the other three. I think we should see them together. And there are some subtle themes, important themes from the book of Daniel that I think connect with some images we have with this first horseman. Now let me tell you something. The big themes in Revelation, the more you study, the clearer they get. God's sovereign power, his holiness, his hatred of sin, his protection of the church, his love for, for the redeemed, the final salvation of the redeemed, these big themes are so clear. <laughs> the details are hard. And so when I tell you I think the first horse is this, I think the, first, the second horse is that, this is just my uh, interpretation. If you want to do as some did last week, came up and gave me your interpretations, I'd enjoy that conversation. And I'll say something like, you know, you may be right. But that's kind of the way it is with these details. So I'll just give you my idea of the details. This first horseman. Dressed in white, wearing one crown, holding a bow but carrying no arrows. I think lines up with the deceptive nature of the Antichrist figures in the book of Daniel. Who in Daniel 11, there's one particular precursor to the Antichrist. And by the way, the as it was, so it will be is especially clearly true with the Antichrists, plural. There are just Antichrists in every generation and there will be a final Antichrist. So antichrists come generally in two types. The doctrinal antichrist, the cult leaders that teach false doctrine. And then the political antichrist, the ones that use their power and authority to oppress the church and hold it down and persecute the church. Sometimes they're one and the same. Sometimes religious leaders can have political power and do the same. But those are all antichrists. You've heard that many antichrists are coming, but there is one that is coming. And so I think in Daniel 11 you have Antiochus Epiphanes, a specific uh, descendant of those that, uh, that uh, followed Alexander the Great, and he just acts out so many satanic, antichrist-type things that, that Daniel 11 predicts. And one of the things he does is he takes over kingdom by guile and treachery and deceptiveness and lies. And he takes over kingdom without a shot being fired. And no arrows are, un, un, are, are loosed from his bow, and he's able to take over um, you know, a kingdom. And so I think uh, we've seen this pattern throughout history. I mentioned last time about Hitler's Munich Accords and how he took over Czechoslovakia without a, a shot being fired. But the whole thing was deception. Because soon after that comes the second horse. And the promise of peace is broken. It was deceptive anyway. And along comes war. The second rider is a red horse. Look at verse 3 and 4. When the Lamb, Jesus, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Chain of command. So... Jesus acts, then another heavenly creature acts, and then things happen. That's the way it works, the chain of command. So this living creature says, come. And another horse came out, a fiery red one. This horse, this rider, was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. So the false peace gives way to warfare, open warfare. And this makes sense because the Antichrist at the end will take over the whole world. Revelation 13, 7 says he was given power to make war over the saints and to conquer them. 
and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Well, if you know anything about the history of the world, the, every tribe, language, people, and nation doesn't give up power easily. They're going to fight, but in the end, they will lose. And there will be one ruler over the entire earth, Revelation 13, 7. He, he's given power over the whole world. But seems like from this horseman gains it by warfare. So, already, not yet, already wars and rumors of wars in every generation. False Christs in every generation. Wicked rulers in every generation. Rise and fall of empires one after the other. Every generation. That's going to go on. But at the end, that's going to be dress rehearsal for the final act with the second horse. Third seal is broken and the third rider is unleashed and it's famine. Look at verse 5 and 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded to be a, a voice among the four living creatures. A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So this is clearly a, a picture of famine. And it makes sense, the joining together between warfare and famine. People are unable to plow fields, are unable to harvest, to plant seeds and tend their crops. They're terrified or dead. And so there's famine, and, and we see that link all the time. However, the detail, do not harm the oil and the wine, implies that there's certain, certain aspects of this that maybe not yet. A detail, don't know exactly what it means to not harm the oil, olive oil, or the wine. Some have linked it to luxury. And so at the highest level of the economic scale, these individuals are protected from the famine, but others have to suffer it, don't really know. And then the fourth seal is broken. Again, Jesus initiates. And the fourth rider is unleashed. And that rider is death. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the, fourth, uh, the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. And again, we should see Christ's initiation. Jesus unleashes death on the earth. He holds the keys of death and the grave. Jesus is in charge of that. To us, he is lamb. He is gentle. He is tender. He is kind-hearted. He shed his blood for us. He protects us. But to the unbelievers and to the wicked, he is a lion. And therefore, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get that strange phrase, the wrath of the lamb. But Jesus has the right, the power, to unleash death on the earth at a scale unprecedented in human history. Now, the rider is described, the horse is pale, Perhaps with a greenish tint because the word is chloros, from which we get chlorine or chlorophyll, which makes all the plants green. So you get that kind of pale, decaying, greenish tint. Uh, but we don't have to wonder. We're told this is death and the grave, Hades, is following close behind. And the slaughter is just immeasurable. A quarter of those who lived on planet Earth. I mentioned in the sermon two weeks ago that uh, the estimates of the death toll of World War II is 60 million which worked out to roughly about 2.6% of the world's population, although you can't really draw, draw firm lines. How can you know if someone who dies, dies of a disease died because it, there was a war? But that, that shows you then just in large pictures just how great this carnage is going to be. This would be roughly 10 times that level of carnage. 10 times the, the death toll. It's just staggering. And yet, as terrible as all of this is, Jesus says all these are just the beginning of birth pains. Matthew 24, 8. The judgments that will follow with the uh, trumpets and the bulls will be far worse than any of these things described up to this point. Now, as we've been following, kind of tracking Jesus' unfolding in Matthew 24, it's interesting in verse 9 and 10, he says, Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all people or all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So he's talking there about persecution for his messengers. And that brings us right to the fifth seal very well. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Again, sticking with the same idea, the lamb initiates the events that result in the slaughter of his own people. 
It's really mind-boggling. It's hard for us to conceive, but it's true. Christ breaks open the fifth seal. The result is the slaughter of many of his own people. Martyrs whose blood soaked the earth. They are slaughtered, it's, it, it's said here, because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They were boldly witnessing to Jesus Christ. They were testifying to their faith in Christ. And they received death as a reward. They were hated by their message. Now, this is a major theme in the book of Revelation. The witnesses of Jesus... Courageously standing before satanic opposition. Courageously uh, testifying to Jesus Christ and to the gospel. And suffering. And then the Lord motivated, vigorously motivated to bring justice as a result of their suffering. The martyrdom of his precious people is of powerful interest to Christ. It is part of his sovereign plan for the advance of the gospel. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. So it's not going to advance the same way all the other kingdoms advance. How will it advance? Well, he gave the principle in John 12, 24. Speaking first of himself, but then of all of us who are his, his witnesses. John 12, 24, he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's how the kingdom advances. Not by killing, but by dying. Christ first. And much fruit flows from the death of his messengers and his servants. That's how it, it advances throughout history. People willing to die. Now, not just physically dying. Very, very few of the witnesses ever are physically martyred. But Paul says in another place, I die daily. It feels like death all the time to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Even if you don't ever physically die as a martyr. It says in Romans 12, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing God. There's an ongoing death that, that happens to being a witness. And uh, Paul celebrates it. He says this is a glorious thing. He says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Which is the church. So what he means there in Colossians 1, there's nothing lacking in the atoning work of Christ. That's redemption accomplished once for all. One day. On one day in history, Jesus' blood atoned for everyone that would be saved in every generation. Once for all. But... That atonement had to, been, had, to, had to then be applied by messengers that are filled with the Spirit and go out and willing to suffer and die. It's been the way that the church has advanced for 20 centuries. Martyr, martyrs have shed their blood in every generation for the love they had for Christ, for the courage of their bold witness for Christ. Tertullian said early on in the struggle against the Roman Empire, the very ones that were persecuting the Apostle John, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. The more of us you kill, the more of us there will be. And so it was. However, at the end of the world, there will be an exponential increase in this kind of suffering. The price of just simple faithfulness to Christ will, will increase exponentially. We're going to find out about the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, who will require people to get the mark of the beast to buy and sell. And so a massive economic disadvantage if you don't, and death if you're not willing to receive it. The mark of the beast. All of this picture is also the Antichrist figure, the horn, and one of the beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel standing on the, on the seashore just as, as uh, is pictured in Revelation 13 as well. And up out of the sea come four beasts, one after the other. And they represent massive world empires, but also just in the end the final empire that's going to come. And in Daniel 7... Daniel's asking about the fourth beast and a horn that came up and conquered these other horns and just behaved really weirdly. And he's trying to understand the significance of that horn on the beast. And this is what he was told. It says, I wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than, than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. You have to just let that come in. Like Jesus is saying right now, behold, I've told you ahead of time. 
Don't be shocked when it happens. Don't be stunned when the Antichrist slaughters tens of thousands of your brothers and sisters. The horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Until, praise God for that word. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Amen, hallelujah. But there's a hard journey to travel between now and then. Later in that same chapter, Daniel 7. After them, another king will arise different from the early ones. He will subdue three kings. Same, same subject. He will speak against the Most High. Words of blasphemy. And he will oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. 42 months. 1260 days. So the kingdom of Antichrist will be a reign of terror for the saints of God alive at that time. They will run for their lives. And perhaps hide in caves and other locations trying just to survive. Jesus said if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So it's a hard time. And they will refuse to receive the mark of the beast so that they can buy or sell. They will not do that. They will be men and women of whom the world is not worthy. As it's spoken of in Hebrews 11. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. But these here in this fifth seal are dead. They have been killed. The slaughtered saints are seen in heaven. And they are under the altar in heaven. They're pictured under the altar, the heavenly altar. This picture is well known to any students of the Old Testament. Basically anyone in trouble, running for his life, could go in and throw himself on God's mercy and hold on to the, the corners, the horns of the, of the uh, altar and, and cry out for protection and mercy. That's the image there. It was a plea to God for mercy and for protection. But these people did not receive the deliverance they sought on earth. And there they are up in heaven crying out to God. They did not receive the miraculous deliverance. They were not miraculously protected. They died. Now they're already under a blessing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were uh, before you but notice what they're crying for in heaven what do they want they want vengeance and they're asking how long will it be until we get the vengeance we yearn for look at verse 10 they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now this has long been a cry of God's suffering people. Many psalms say this, How long, O Lord, how long? God's providence is difficult to interpret. God's ways are beyond tracing out. We don't know what he's doing. and It's very painful. Psalm 94.3, how long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Or Psalm 74.10.11, how long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Psalm 74. We should not imagine that a cry for vengeance in heaven is in any way unworthy. That's one thing I learned from this. It's not unworthy to seek vengeance for these wicked persecutors of the church. They're not corrected. They're not told they should have a, a higher view or a better outlook. It seems a completely appropriate cry. Now, for us, I must say, just big picture of the book of Revelation, we struggle, and rightly so, with the clear depictions of the wrath of God. It's hard for us to really understand the outpouring of God's wrath. There is, in our hearts, I think it should be genuinely, a yearning for mercy. We yearn for God to show grace and mercy to our enemies. And so Jesus, even on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, when he was dying, said, Oh Lord, please don't lay this sin to their charge. Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. He taught us to turn the other cheek. 
The Apostle Paul, who was persecuted more viciously than any of us ever will be, mostly by his own countrymen, said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of these, my persecutors. That's completely right. But so is this. This is completely right too. I think the way I sort it out is there's going to come a clarity of judgment day. And the wheat and the weeds will be exposed. It's going to be clear. And there's nothing wrong with yearning for the wrath of God poured out on those who will not ever repent and believe and follow. There's another problem too and it's something that's very acute if it's happening to you. And that is, why weren't my prayers answered? I mean, you think about all of the martyrs who died. And you think about what's going on even now with ISIS. You think about people being beheaded. You think about house church pastors in communist countries that are arrested. And people pray and pray and pray that they be delivered. But they're not delivered. They're not set free. Maybe sometimes they're tortured and even put to death. And, you know, people can wonder, like the, the, the spouses, the kids, the friends, the churches. Why will you not answer our Our prayer, what happened? And it's even more acute if you look at Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Remember that? And uh, there's this widow, and she's crying out day after day to this judge who neither fears God nor cares about men. It's like got to be the worst thing you could ever be said, uh, could ever be said about a judge. Now, there was a judge that neither feared God nor cared about men. And he even says about himself, well, I neither fear God nor care about men. What does the widow want? Justice against her adversary, her enemy. And what Jesus says very acutely in Luke 18, he says, will not God, listen to what the unjust judge says, because he's just tired of this woman that comes out day after day. What about God, who loves his persecuted children, and hears them crying out for justice day after day? Will he put them off for long? No, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Hmm. 20 centuries of suffering, 20 centuries of blood. And there are people asking, why didn't you set my husband free? Why is he dead now? And there's that cry, the the martyrs are in heaven. How long until the vengeance comes? The desire for justice and vengeance is completely godly. And we have to embrace it as a major theme in the book of Revelation. Or you will recoil from Revelation and not be able to accept it. It lines up with the very thing God is planning on doing to vindicate his suffering people. Romans 12, 19 and 20 says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. Oh, you know that one. That's one of the most famous statements. Vengeance is mine. What's the next part? I will repay. Now, that's something people don't remember as frequently. I promise you I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... This is what we're told. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I could add, and Paul wouldn't mind, I don't think, the idea. You might also result in his conversion. Saul of Tarsus was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples and then was converted by the kindness of Stephen and the kindness of those that he dragged off to prison, both men and women. He put, they put goads in Saul's heart that led him uh, to salvation. But in Romans 12, all he mentions is, in so doing, you'll heap burning coals of wrath on their heads. God has promised he will repay. And no book in the Bible so clearly depicts God repaying the wicked for the way they attacked and murdered the righteous as does the book of Revelation. Revelation 16, the third angel pours out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. It's a clear link between the the wrath that comes and the persecution that they did to the church. Notice also that these dead saints, these martyrs, are very aware of the events going on, on on earth. They know what's happening. That's very insightful, isn't it? They, they're tracking. They know that the vengeance hasn't come yet. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So be on your best behavior. The things that we do are in full view of a heavenly audience. Know also that God refrains from punishing the wicked, not just because some of them are elect and will later come to Christ, 
but because he's trying to display his unlimited patience. It says in Romans 9.22, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? He's bearing with their wickedness with great patience. Now, the patience of God is supposed to lead them to repentance and salvation through faith in Christ. Bear in mind, says Peter, that our Lord's patience means salvation. Some of the elect begin as vicious persecutors and end as sweet brothers and sisters in Christ. And we hope for that. But these wicked people do not use the patience of God properly. They only harden their hearts and store up more wrath. Romans 2 says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, look at verse 11. The martyrs are comforted and partially rewarded. Each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the, the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So the white robe represents the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Even these martyrs, these heroes of the faith, still were sinners saved by grace. They still had sins needing to be cleansed. They still had uh, uh, nakedness needing to be covered. And they're given the gifts of imputed righteousness and forgiveness and atonement. And they're told to wait. The saints in heaven are waiting. They're not fully saved. They're not fully rewarded yet. They're waiting. Heaven is a place of waiting. All of the dead saints are absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right? What are they waiting for? Resurrection bodies. The full salvation is the resurrection of the body. They're waiting for that. But these are waiting also for their vindication against their murderers. And the Lord tells them they're to wait until the full number of martyrs comes in who are to be martyred as they Friends, everything's counted. God is the great mathematician. I've tried to tell this to my kids, some of whom have loved math and some not so much. Math is a reflection of the character of God. It wasn't much of a sales point, but I tried, you know. God is a very orderly being. Everything's been numbered. It's all been counted out. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And so the martyrs are numbered too. And when that full number comes in, then the end will come. The sixth seal is broken. And this is the end of this heaven and earth. Look at verses 12, and se- 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? These sights are breathtaking and overwhelming. This is the end of the universe as we know it. The earth itself is shaken from under their feet. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. The sun, the moon, and the stars... Shaken, affected. Celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and stars. Copernicus was right in the 16th century to say that the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. Well, that's true. But when it comes to purpose, when it comes to history, even the celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars, are earth-centric. They were created for an earth-centric reason. Genesis 1 says that they were created to mark seasons and days and years and to give light to the earth. Genesis 1.14. They're created for an earth-centered reason. But when the events of human history have run their course, the sun, the moon, and the stars will end their existence in the heavens. The universe exists for an earthly purpose. The sun turns dark, the moon turns blood red, the stars fall from the sky like figs from a fig tree. 
I cannot understand what this means in terms of cosmology. The stars are incomprehensibly distant. But we know that God numbers each of them, calls them each by name because of his power. None of them is missing. He can do what he wants with his stars. He has that kind of power. But look at the terror of earth's inhabitants, the great day of God's wrath. God has a terrifying, active wrath against sin. God is not mild. He's not indifferent toward it. He is angry about it. Sin enrages him. Psalm 18, verses 7 through 13. David writes this. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. And out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. And the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. That is the wrath of God against planet Earth for the sinfulness of the human race. Now, we're told in Scripture that God expresses His wrath every day. But we don't know it. We're not always sure this is wrath. You have two people dying in two different uh, hospital rooms. One of them is a saint going to heaven. The other one is receiving the wrath of God for sin. We, we have no way of knowing, but it happens every day. Well, this is a full, open display of the wrath of God. Nobody's wondering about it. God had patiently deferred the full display of his wrath on the earth's wicked inhabitants. He is patient. He's reserved his wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. But at last, that day has come. This is the, the, the day of the Lord. It is coming. And as the sixth seal is opened, the inhabitants of the earth recognize that day has come at last. And they are terrified of it. And there is this vast prayer. But it's a pagan prayer. It's not a prayer to God. It's a prayer to the mountains and to the rocks. It comes from the mouth of every single unconverted person on the face of the earth. Cutting across all socioeconomic and government levels. Look again at verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. So you got these leaders, these pillars, kings, princes, generals, rich and mighty. And then every slave and every free man. That's everyone else. This is everybody. And they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. There is only one refuge. And they missed it. They're calling to the earth to hide them. They're calling to the mountains to give them refuge. But the earth will disclose the bloodshed upon it. The earth is not their ally to hide them in their wickedness at this point. And no one can hide from the eyes of the Lord. The God we worship is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. Fully everywhere. The God we worship is omniscient. That means he knows everything that you're doing. And he's omnipotent, meaning he can do anything he wants with his creation. He has that kind of power. There's no escape. Listen to Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake from top down like an earthquake. Bring them down on the heads of all those people. All those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. Listen to this. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. That's a terrifying statement. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. There's no escape. 
There's nowhere to go. The mountains and the rocks and the caves will not be an escape from the great day of the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They are seeking refuge. And friends, I'm telling you right now, in the preaching of the gospel, I'm warning you and telling you, there is a refuge and only one refuge. And you have to flee now when none of these things are happening to your eyesight. You have to actually go out on this beautiful sunny Sunday and see everything looking as it always does and believe there will come a day that judgment will come. You have to believe that by faith. Nothing will show it to you. You just have to hear this word and believe that it's coming. If you don't, you will not seek refuge. But there is a refuge and his name is Jesus. And next chapter, we're going to get an answer to the great day of the wrath of God has come. And who is able to stand? We'll find out in Revelation 7 who can stand. But I'll tell you now, those that believe in Jesus can stand. Those that flee to Christ and find refuge in him. For he is our propitiation. He is our lightning rod that takes the strike of the wrath of God and carries it safely away from us. Revelation, sorry, Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, Sinners are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented him as a propitiation. That's a sacrifice of blood that takes away his wrath. Wrath is gone because of the blood sacrifice. God presented Jesus to be that for us through faith in his blood. So we have to flee to him now. Listen to this, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are kept safe. Isn't that beautiful? Everyone who calls in the name of the Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus, you run to that, that tower and you'll be kept safe. Now, how does the sixth seal relate to the rest of the book of Revelation? Interesting question. I'm glad you asked. This is a key, interpretive key to the rest of the book for me. Because, honestly, what's left at the end of the sixth seal? Sky is gone, earth and, and every mountain and island is gone, everything's gone, it's all gone. So how do you then have, like, vegetation burning up and, and all this kind of stuff in Revelation 8? How do you actually have, uh, in Revelation 8... The, the sun and the moon and the stars greatly reduced in their light. I thought they were gone. So what this teaches me is that Revelation is going to go out and tell a whole story. And then go back and tell the same story again with more detail. And then go back and tell the same story again with a little more detail. That's the best way to look at this. And Revelation 6, 12 through 17 is the key to that. You can see everything's gone. And now we go back and explain how everything will be gone. Applications. First, understand the sovereign power of Jesus Christ over the unfolding of redemptive history. There are so many distressing events, aren't there? Daily distress, suffering and pain, people dying, people getting blown up at concerts. And what do you do when the, the one who perpetrated is dead? Where do you, I mean, they're gone. There's no investigation. And then ISIS takes credit for it. I don't know what. The evil, it's just so unspeakable. And you look at that and it's like, what, what do you do? God has an answer. But what I want to say to you is, God's plan is on schedule. Jesus breaks the seals and then things happen on earth. Everything's going according to plan. So trust in that. Secondly, see the pattern of already not yet. There's going to be things we're experiencing in our lifetime, even if Jesus doesn't return for another 200 years. We're experiencing them now. But as it was, so it's going to be. Thirdly, prepare for the end of the universe. Second Peter 3, it's the same thing again and again. Prepare for the end of the universe. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. That is the internal journey of holiness and sanctification and the external journey of evangelism and missions. Our job, we who sit and listen to this preaching, is to be fired up by this and go talk to people who are lost this week. And tell them that there's a refuge and then there's a need to flee to it. They're not going to see it. It's going to look like just regular everyday life. It's going to look like a regular Monday tomorrow. Tell them that the wrath of God is coming. And tell them to flee. Fourthly, recognize the place of martyrs in the plan of God. Don't wonder where is God when the martyrs actually die despite the prayers of the church. It's true that Peter was delivered by the prayers of the church. But it's also true that in that same chapter James was beheaded. He was killed. And God didn't love James any more than Peter or Peter more than James. He just has different plans. And so God uses the blood of martyrs to spread the gospel. And so be willing to die daily. Be willing to, you're not going to probably die as a physical martyr. Maybe, but probably not. But it feels like dying to share the gospel with your boss 
with an unsaved relative, with a neighbor, with a co-worker, with a total stranger. It feels like dying. Be willing to die for the spread of the gospel. Fifth, embrace the doctrine of the wrath of God for sin. God is not mild about this. He actually has an aggressive anger about the way that the church treats, or the way that the world treats his church, and the way that sin uh, goes on. And then finally, to those of you that have come here today and you know that you're outside the grace of God, I've already preached the gospel to you. I'm just pleading with you. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time. When everything looks normal, now's the time to believe that this is coming. This is the time to flee to Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Revelation chapter 6. We thank you for the things that we learn in this incredible chapter. We thank you for the grace of the Holy Spirit who gives us clear instructions and interpretations that tell us what to do and what kind of lives we should live. Father, help us to hate the sin that is going to bring this wrath on the earth. Help us to hate the sins of sexual immorality and sinful pride and anger and idolatry. Help us to hate these things in our lives and to grieve against them and to fight against them by the power of the Spirit. And help us, O Lord, to reach out with boldness here in Durham and in Chapel Hill and in Raleigh and wherever we are to share the gospel with people who are as yet on the outside. Help us to have compassion on them and bring them in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.